Now on these series, on this series on where is my honor, we have talked about God the Creator and spent considerable time showing that He is indeed the one who made everything. In understanding God, we need to understand many, many facets of His personality, of the things He is, of the things that He does. He is not definable in one sentence. He is not defined in one mode or one uh, activity. He is defined in many, many ways because He is one and all and everything. So we have to consider His various jobs, His various uh, areas of authority. So the beginning was all by God. And if you understand that He created, then you begin to understand that He has a power, a presence that is beyond anything else. Then we considered that He is Almighty, and this is a very critical part of His personality because there can only be one ruler in the universe. That was tested by one who became Satan, and He is still in the process of being put down from that rebellion that occurred. There is a plan to finish that off and to prove that God is all in all and that He is the Almighty. And Satan, as we know, will be bound not only for a thousand years, he will be released for a short season and then apparently bound again forevermore so that God will be all in all and His almighty power will be obvious. Now I want to consider another facet of his personality, his makeup today, as it influences us, and that is his role as the rule maker, or the lawgiver, or the one who makes statutes, judgments, ordinances, the one who determines how life should be lived. This is a critical issue for several reasons. But I want to go back to beginning, to the beginning again. Seems like we so frequently go back to Genesis. Here in Genesis 1, right after the creation, God began to establish that He was the one who would give instruction on how life was to be lived and to give commandments as well, not just instruction and guidance, but also commandments. And this began right after man was created. Let's pick it up in Genesis 1 and verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So he ordained or established a relationship here. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the things that I've created. So right after their creation, he gave them instructions on how they should live. They were instructed to begin a population on the earth because God had a plan in mind 
to uh, not clone himself, I guess is a bad word, but to create a large family for himself. And it had to start with a very small beginning. He had created angels. One who took a third of the angels with him had rebelled. And he wanted to start us out as a very fragile, human, uh, replaceable, and destructible situation. So that if we did not do what we were supposed to do, the plan could be wiped away and there would be no eternal punishment or punishing, but eternal death or cessation of life and consciousness so that we would not be a problem in the universe. But he started out by giving instruction. And he told them that they were to have dominion over the earth, that they were to become responsible for what goes on on the face of the earth. Now, I'm extrapolating into this a certain amount, but when he says, I give you dominion over, that means that you have a responsibility to take care of, to rule over, to guide, to lead things in a proper way. So he gave that authority. And then he even told them about their eating habits. You see, right from the beginning, God got into every part of their lives, didn't he? It isn't just a rule or two here and there, but God is showing here that what we do, and down to the very things we eat, he does have jurisdiction, he sets the rules. God said, Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, and the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for food, and to every beast of the air, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Now, it does not say that he gave them opportunity to eat meat at that time, but it was in his plan from the very beginning because he created clean and unclean animals from the beginning. And it wasn't long until he, re until he introduced that concept. So he had the whole plan of what we would be allowed to eat and what we would not be allowed to eat in mind before he ever created us. He set the rules before he even made us. And then little by little, he revealed those rules to mankind. I find it very interesting that he did not give them many rules at the beginning, did he? He introduced more and more as we needed more and more. As we broke the ones he did make, he gave us more. So with a little bit of instruction to begin with, we wound up with a whole big black book, didn't we? Because we couldn't follow a few simple instructions. So apparently to him, his position as rule maker, or lawgiver, if you will, is very important. Because from the very beginning, what happened? They began to break the rules. And we know the story. I'm not going to go into it in great deal, into great detail here, uh, because we know how one who had been the first to break the rules, Satan came and beguiled them and pulled them away from the rule maker. What did he really tell them? Now the serpent in chapter 3 was more subtle than any, any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. 
He said to the woman, Yes, as God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Question. Is that what God said? In other words, did he give instructions or make rules? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of this fruit, he said, Don't eat it, don't touch it, you'll die. So she was able to quote back to him the rule. We're not supposed to touch that tree. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So what was he really telling her? He was saying there are no rules. The rules God gave you don't matter. Now look at the world today, and how many people follow the rules of this book? Even among them, those who call themselves Christian or followers of God, primarily in the Western world, how many actually look at and follow the rules? Most of them have boiled it down to about one thing, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Christ kind of boiled it down to that too, didn't he? But the problem is, the rest of this book defines what that means. And you can take a catchphrase like that, or a summarization like that, and then forget about all the things that it means because it sounds good. So that was Satan's whole deal. There are no rules, or... If there are rules, you don't have to follow them. <clears throat> Do you know how easy it is for people to accept that? Most people understand that there are rules, even in our society today. But how often do we justify or find a way to go around the rules of God and man? Why do we do that, I wonder? We'll see a little bit. Now, we have an interesting saying today, and that is, he who, makes, who, he who has the, go, the golden rule, that's what I'm trying to get at, he who has the gold makes the rules. I wonder where that came from. Now, it may be from the things Christ said about the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, and so on, but I think we can take it clear back to Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 11. Speaking of the river that came out of Eden and was parted into four heads, the name of the first is Pison, that is, it which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. So from the beginning, God mentions gold. Human beings have things on this earth that they respect or desire or put stock in or value. And when we get rid of our fiat dollars and we go back to that which might have intrinsic value, if you will, we turn back to the rare and precious metals that God placed in the earth, the gold, the silver, platinum, and so on. Right from the very beginning, God shows that he created it, he put it near his place, right out of the Garden of Eden. 
But there's an interesting thought in itself I had not considered. I've seen that iron and so on, other natural resources uh, of that nature are not in the Middle East, but they are around the area where I believe Jerusalem is, or the original Jerusalem was it is. But this was at the Garden of Eden, and I think it's been pretty well established that Eden was at Jerusalem. So we would expect to find gold in, around, and near Jerusalem, shouldn't we? Since that is what is mentioned here. It was told me two or three years ago that they drilled 30,000 feet into the Earth's crust up in southern Utah in one place, about five miles down. And they drilled through a three-foot-thick layer of gold, solid gold, right near Jerusalem. Kind of interesting. And I know that there is a lot of gold in all of southern Utah, all over the place. I've been involved in finding that out in the last three years. It's here. And there is none over there. That's a side light, but... The point I wanted to make here is that God says in Haggai, the gold is mine and the silver is mine. So from the very beginning, around the Garden of Eden, there was good gold, probably a lot of it in high quality. And God says the gold and the silver is his. So the golden rule goes all the way back, doesn't it? He who has the gold makes the rules. And God shows himself from the very beginning here. He is the one who makes the rules. Now let's notice in Isaiah 14 what happens when someone ignores that idea. Isaiah 14. Uh, let's go to verse 4. We're familiar with this. You that shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How has the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? Now, Babylon is representative of Satan's system, and I think it is best represented on this earth today by the government in Washington, D.C., and even in Israel, who has become a clone of Babylon and has really, in, the, in that sense, become the leader of Babylon. The Eternal has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. Those who rule and rule wickedly and do not keep God's rules, God will break. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and none hinders. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Uh, he's speaking here of a system but the one that is behind it is Satan. Let's go on down to uh, well, down to verse 11. Your pomp is brought down to the grave. Pomp is what? Vanity, ego, self-centeredness, pompousness. And the noise of your vials, the worm is spread under you, and the worms cover you. How are you fallen from heaven, O Hillel, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Now, he weakened the beginning nation, Adam and Eve, did he not? Virtually destroyed them from the opportunity God was giving them and the blessing. God blessed them, he said, right from the beginning. We kind of passed over that. 
But then after they listened to one who came and said, you don't have to keep the rules, they received cursing. We've read that recently, so I won't go back there. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. In other words, I will make the rules, or I will rule. God's rules don't matter. Saying the same thing he said to Adam and Eve. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And then he told him he would be brought down and so on. Who are you that made the earth tremble and so on? You're going to be brought completely down, it goes on to say. So God will not tolerate anyone who says, I will make different rules or I don't have to keep the rules. That is something he will not tolerate. Let's go to Exodus 21, or Exodus 20, I want, 20 and verse 1, I meant to say. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Eternal, your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. He starts doing what here? giving a law. Law is rules. He's the rule maker. He's the law giver. We know the law. I'm not going to focus on that today. I want to stop there in this context. But here the law was given to Israel when they came out of Egypt. He wanted to show them from the very beginning, right after they came out, I'm the one who determines how you will live I am the one who determines how you will think, what you will do. I make the rules. I have the gold. I have power to bless and power to curse. So not only do I make rules, I expect those rules to be kept. Isaiah 33. Here he says essentially the same thing, but puts it in a little bit different context. It's not a matter here of giving the law. But Isaiah 33 and verse 22. For the eternal is our judge. The eternal is our lawgiver. The eternal is our king. He will save us. So there are three of God's offices that are mentioned here. The middle one of which is lawgiver. He's the one that does that. That is his responsibility. We cannot make our own rules. Genesis 26. Here we have a story about the father of the faithful. Genesis 26 and verse 5. Well, let's see verse 4. And I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto your seed all these countries, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, God shows great blessing here. Why? That's the reason I read the verse before. 
Why does he do it? Then he says, because. I will bless you because that Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, my rules. There will be blessing for keeping and doing things God's way. Now, you can find many, many cases in the Bible where cursing comes from not doing things God's way. Now, we should all be on board, shouldn't we? We all agree keeping God's laws, His statutes, His commandments is a good and right thing to do. In fact, I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? We all know this. We've been over these things many times in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And we all know this. But I think it is good that we go through and establish these various aspects of God and focus on the various ones. Because, inevitably, there is a problem. Let's go on in Exodus 16, verse 28. See, uh, let's see. Yeah, and the Eternal said to Moses, speaking of the people and to Moses himself, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? He gave them simple instruction. It wasn't part of the Ten Commandments, was it? <laughs> he says, go out and pick up the manna that I'm going to provide food for you six days in the week, but the seventh day, don't go out and pick it up. But they didn't have a mind to keep the rules. Now, God could have not put it there, couldn't he? He wanted to teach them something. You eat when I say eat. You gather when I say gather. You do what I say. They were like little children coming out of Egypt. They had to learn who was in charge. You keep my rules. You do it my way. Now we're beginning to see where the rub comes. It's easy enough to agree, although most people don't, but we need to keep God's rules. We need to keep His laws and His commandments. We as a church understand that. Most people in the world do not understand that, nor do most of them even care. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Sin is the breaking or the transgression of the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. So if we break his rules, his laws, the penalty is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Emmanuel, our Lord. So he shows us here there's two ways to go. You can either obey God's laws and his commandments, his rules, and live, or you can break them and die. Quite simple, isn't it? It's either or. Do or don't. Live or die. Why will you die, O Israel? Is death pleasant? Do any of us look forward to it? I don't. In fact, it's something we don't want to even admit until we get to a certain age in life and we begin to realize, yeah, I think I am going to die someday. 
But when we're 18 or 25, we're immortal, aren't we? Bulletproof. Don't think we can die. But at some point, we begin to realize, yeah, this is going to happen. God built it into the system. Notice in Romans 3, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Now, that, that is, that's not what I wanted. Was it 3.31? Yes, 3.31 is what I had in mind. Do we then make void the law through faith? This argument over whether the law is done away with, and if you have faith, you'll receive grace, and so on. God forbid. Yes, we establish the law. People misread Romans 3 through 6 and 7. Don't understand what it means. Paul is an advocate for the law, completely and totally. He wasn't against it at all. See, that's why the story of the two trees in the garden was so important. It's why I spent so much time in it in a series on it in a series to explain what they really are. Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does represent God's rules, his laws. And if they had obeyed his instructions from the very beginning, they would not have needed laws against sin because they would have never understood evil. They would never have understood bad. Wouldn't it be better for you and me if we didn't even know what evil was? But we're quite well acquainted with it, are we not? That which is depressing and discouraging and leads down instead of up. We're quite familiar with it. And God removed the possibility of eating of the tree of life and living eternally from them when they began to disobey his roots. Because he did not want anyone to live forever who was in a wicked, sinful or state or one who did not want to follow his roots. It's that simple. Let's go on, chapter 7 of Romans, verse 12. Here's a conclusion he makes in an area of Scripture which confuses a lot of people. But he makes some very plain statements in here. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. So the one who created the earth, and looked at it and said, it's all very good. It's beautiful. It's wonderful, the creation that I have made. He is the one who made all beauty, all things inspiring and lovely that we see around us. And right in the middle of that context, he also began to give instructions. So the instructions he began to give were the same quality as what he had just created because his rules are intended to maintain, to preserve peace, happiness, harmony, getting along, and love. 
That's what his rules are for. So, just like the creation, they also are very good, and Paul calls them that here. Was then that which is good made death to me? God forbid. The, the law is not bad. It wasn't made death to it. Well, then what was? Sin. Breaking the law. The law is wonderful. Breaking it creates problems. If they had obeyed God's instructions, they would have lived in the garden, they would have eventually been given the tree of life and lived forever, and we wouldn't have had to go through all this mess we're in. So we'll blame them. But the problem is, we also have done exactly what Adam and Eve did. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We, too, have not followed his instructions, and we, too, have brought frustration and misery and suffering and emotional turmoil upon ourselves because we didn't do things the right way. Most of our problems are self-caused. We can blame a mate, we can blame a child, we can blame a parent, we can blame an associate, we can blame anybody you want to imagine. But most of our problems are self-created because we are not doing what we ought to be doing. It's that simple. Paul didn't blame his parents or he didn't blame the rabbis who taught him, did he? Notice, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. He said, the law is good, but what is in me caused me to break it and sin and create problems. So he took it upon himself and blamed the sin that so easily besets us, as he put it in Hebrews. That the commandment by it might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual. Now here's where the rub really comes, brethren. The law is spiritual. It's good. It's of God and His Spirit. But I am carnal, sold under sin. <clears throat> it is our very nature not to like the rules. Ever since Satan rebelled against God and said, I won't keep your rules, I'll be the ruler, or make the rules, or deny the rules, however you want to put it, and he fed that line to Adam and Eve, we have taken on a carnal human nature that is diametrically opposed to rule-keeping. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can even understand it? And that's the way our minds by nature work. Most of you here who are adults have brought children into the world. And those children begin to rebel against your guidance, your rules. How soon? Doesn't take them very long. You can spoil them in a matter of just a few days from birth. 
to the point they yowl and scream and rebel if you even put them down on a nice, soft, warm bed out of your arms. That's how quickly human nature takes over and it says, I want the comfort of whatever he wanted. I don't want what you just did to me. I make the rules around here and I'm going to scream till you pick me back up. And you, dunderhead, young mother or father, did just that. And it became entrenched more and more. And then you tell him, oh, he's so spoiled. Phew. We spoil so easily, don't we? How long did it take Adam and Eve to spoil? Not very long. We are carnal and sold under sin. We, as a human being, of ourselves, do not want to keep the rules. And I think that is a critical issue in talking about God as the rule maker or the lawgiver. Is that we recognize, and I think that we do to a great extent, realize our carnal human nature is against God. For that which I do, verse 15, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Do we ever find ourselves in that position? Or, I, let me rephrase that, do we ever not find ourselves in that position? It's very difficult. The things you know you should be thinking, you'll be thinking about something else. The things you should not be thinking about, you'll find yourself thinking about. Now, that means our conduct is established by rule, by God. That's what he's saying here. There is a way that's right. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And we can reason ourselves and justify ourselves into breaking any rule that God has ever made, can't we? And we can sometimes do it just like that. It doesn't take us very long to decide that what we're doing is probably okay for the moment, or I'll repent later, or whatever. We find a way. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. I recognize that God's rules are the right way. It's just that I have a problem. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. This desire to go against the rules. That's what it is. It's a desire to do it my way. That which would feel good, sound good, taste good, whatever. That is what I want. And I don't care what they say. That's what I'm going to do. That's the way I'm going to think. There are instructions in this book. <clears throat> Some of them, you go along with pretty well, and you wouldn't dare do that. You, you know, oh, that's just horrible to you. You wouldn't do that. And anybody that would, oh, that's the worst thing on earth. But there are other things in here that you can read, and you'll do them. To men, people, some rules seem worse to break than others. And yet every one of these rules has an effect upon our lives. Every one of them we break will affect us and hurt us and harm us in some way. 
whether they seem to be minor ones or major ones. Maybe there will be a different level of damage done if it's a minor one and more damage if it's a major one. All rules are there for a purpose. Every word is here for a purpose, whether it's big or little. Okay, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is within my flesh, my mind, my heart, my emotions, me, <clears throat> dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. He has a conflict here, a difficulty. He's trying to explain what human nature is like, how his mind, your mind, my mind work, is what he's explaining. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me. The nature, the carnality, the desire to break the rules that is in every one of us. It's just there. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He had the Spirit of God, and he understood that the law is a holy, just, good thing, which he just said, a wonderful thing, and yet he was having a terrific struggle to control his conduct. But I see another law in my members, his eyes, his hands, his feet, his mouth, all of his bodily parts he found a war in. Warring against the law of my mind. So he realized in his mind that you should do this, but every part of his body was screaming to do the other thing. And bringing me, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Sin is germane to our body. It's intrinsically a part of us. It's just there by nature to want to break God's rules. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now while this is difficult and, and hard to deal with because we all have this war going on in us, Yet I still find encouragement and strength in this to know the one as high in God's estimation as to write Scripture, Paul, an apostle, had the same battle going on that you and I do. So it's not just you and me. It's every human being that's walked the earth. And that's why someone like Abraham stands out so vividly in history is because he obeyed the laws, the statutes, the ordinances of God. And that has been a very, very rare occurrence, brethren. Now, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, haven't we? But we are now being what? We're being converted. Our minds, our emotions are being changed. But that downward pull, as long as we are human, is going to be there. It may not be anything bigger than, and that's an anomaly in itself, a little self-centeredness, a little selfishness, a little me first, a little vanity, a little ego, 
a little putting ourselves above someone else in our estimation. Those things come so easily to us, don't they? Well, let's go on. I don't want to get too much into that because there are more scriptures I need to get to which will explain that in greater detail. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Emmanuel our Lord. Now, the Almighty God is the one that provides an answer for us by doing what? Sending His Son who would die for our transgression of God's rules so that we might not have to pay the ultimate penalty. We are under the penalty of the law unless forgiven. So then with the mind, I myself serve the laws, the rules of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This is just down-to-earth brass tacks what being a human being is all about, isn't it? This, this is us. There is therefore now no condemnation, condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So it says, if we'll walk after the Spirit, there's hope. For the law of the Spirit is life in Emmanuel, and has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now that doesn't mean the law is done away with. That means that Christ is able to bring us above the law and help us keep it, and also remove the penalty for having broken it. Therefore, we do not have to suffer that penalty. And it's not the law we're trying to get out from under. It's the penalty of the law, death, that we want to avoid. People can't see the forest for the trees. They're trying to do away with the rules that lead to life. If we keep these rules, we can live. If we break them, we're going to die. They want to do away with the rules and live as they want to, and that ensures they're going to die. Their doctrine is abominable and satanic. Love the rules that God has made. What did David say? Oh, how love I your laws. We need to come in our minds to love the rules and not be rebellious against them. Now, that is not a natural circumstance that will ever occur with human beings. It is a transformation. It is a conversion that has to occur through the Spirit of God. For what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh. The law tells you the rules, but we got a problem. We have a temptation, and we break the rules. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He never gave in once. Not once a day, not once an hour. He never gave in once in a lifetime. How incredible is that? Beyond my comprehension. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's a mouthful, isn't it? The law is righteous. And he wants that righteousness of the law to be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. 
For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be natural-minded is death, but to be spiritually-minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity, or an enemy is against the law of God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh or that walk by the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. The only chance we have is to have his spirit and begin to be converted to not being rebellious against his roots. Because every one of us is a rebel at heart. We want to do things our way, not his way. And the human being in Satan's world has a drive that is beyond our comprehension and description to do it his way. It is just in us. That's what he's saying here. Let's go to James 4. Do we see, analyzing ourselves here, looking at these very uncomfortable scriptures, do we see a need for someone to make rules because what does human being what happens to human beings who follow their own rules and their own ways? Look at the world around you. They despise the word, the rules of God. They basically do away with all but a few verses of his book. And what do we have a world that is filled with? Crime, murder, depression, every kind of ADD or ADT or DDT or whatever it is that you can name, we as a society are suffering from. We're suffering from horrible diseases. We're plagued by war and hatred and fear. Why? Because mankind as a whole has said we will not live by the rules of the one who created the rules. We will make our own rules, or we will have no rules. Or most of us just simply say, I don't care who makes the rules, nobody's going to tell me what to do. That is vanity, ego, and self-centeredness, which is at the heart and core of every human being. James 4, and here I want verse 12. Uh, can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine fig? So can no fountain both yield water and fresh. That's not the verse I wanted. I wanted the one here. Oh, here it is. Uh, verse 8. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith, with our tongues, we bless God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. Bless God, curse man. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. And it goes on. I won't read the rest of it. We're familiar with it. But God is telling us here, is he not, 
that his rules go down to the very basic part of our lives. Even what we say, he regulates. Isn't that amazing? Now, in this nation, we say we have freedom of speech guaranteed by the Constitution. And under that freedom of speech, all manner of evil is spoken today and justified. Things that should not be spoken. Why? Not because of the Constitution, but because of God's rules. But there are those who will interpret it to mean I can say anything I want to because the Constitution gives me that freedom. You're not going to tell me what I can say and can't say. God regulates even that. We are not supposed to curse and put down men who are made in the image of God. We'll say, well, I worship God, I love God, I respect God. But then we turn around and speak evil and stab in the back those who are made in God's image and are his children. And he says, this can't be. So the rules come right down to what we even say. God regulates that, does he not? Matthew 4, 4. I won't turn there. You know it well. Live by every word of God. There is not one word in this book that can be done away. Every last word here we are to live by. So this is the rule book for mankind. This is the rules you live by. We do not need rules and laws in our nation if we would just simply adopt this book as our entire rule book. It's all we need. That's why we here are using this as our rule book. We are trying to get in line with every word of God. And you know what? It's a struggle, isn't it? Very difficult. We fight it. We are yet carnal to a great degree. We are not fully convinced that God is the rule maker and that we need to follow every rule, every word that he says. Now we're convinced in mind that is a true principle. But just like Paul, we find a law warring in our bodies to do different from that. Philippians 2. And here I'll begin in verse 1. If there be any, if there be, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any emotions, deep emotions and mercies, Fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, we should be here together, working together to become of one mind, to be joined together in such a way that we think alike, we act alike, we do things in a godly fashion, not in our own fashion, not in our own way. What do we say? Each in his own words, each in his own way. They've said you can pray that way at football stadiums or whatever. No. What do you mean each in his own words and each in his own way? 
How about according to God's Word in His way? Now, what they're allowing when they say that is for you to believe anything you want and whatever God you want and whatever rules you want. It's leaving it open not to offend anybody by telling them how they ought to think or act or do. No, 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 no. It's only one way to do it. That's God's way. Let nothing be done through strife, contention, problems, attitudes between each other, or vainglory, setting ourselves above each other and our attitudes and our minds, putting our opinions above somebody else's opinions, ego, vanity, self-centeredness. But in lowliness of mind, humility as we heard in the sermonette, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now I'll tell you what, that in a half a verse is as big a mouthful as you can say. Do we esteem others' opinions, their feelings, their needs, their desires, more important than our own? Their opinions, their abilities? Or do we set ourselves a bit above others and think that our way is the right way, our opinion is the right way, the way we think has to be right because, after all, it's me. That's the way we as human beings think. And that's why this instruction is here. To actually, in our posture, our mind, our mode, if we'll use a technical term today, the mode of our mind should be on putting others above ourselves. You know how you change the mode on electronic gadgets? Keep punching the button until you get the right mode and then it'll work the way you want it to? So often you find yourself in the me first mode. Punch, punch, punch. And it won't change modes. <laughs> me better than you mode. My opinion's better than yours. We'll do it my way. Or the highway. So natural to us. So easy. Sometimes there's an electronic disconnect. You can hit the change mode button over and over and it, nothing happens. Remember the song about the attitude adjustment? We have to adjust our thinking and our emotions to fit this scripture. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now we can take care of our own responsibilities and needs but they are also to include the needs of others. Now, some of us are by nature more open and willing to share our lives. Some of us are very closed and very private and don't want our, anything about our lives to be known by anybody. You can just mention somebody's name sometimes, and that almost offends them because the fact that you mention their name means you were talking about them. It is not wrong for us to be entwined together and care about and even discuss our needs and how we might help each other. That is not gossip. Gossip is when you say things that are hurtful, things that put them down, that stab them, that draw blood, if you will. But some of us get offended real easy when people just mention us because we think, well, it must have been bad. 
Not necessarily. How can our lives be entwined and looking on others' needs and desires and hopes if we're not even allowed to discuss sometimes? Now, I know it gets so easy to go from so-and-so has had some difficulties and we need to pray this way and how can we help? Those are not wrong emotions. Those aren't stabs in the back. Recognizing somebody has a problem? Now, if we put them down, that's wrong. But if we say, man, I'm facing this difficulty, tell me, how, how can I help? Yes, we must be very careful, but it's not wrong for us even to discuss each other's difficulties with each other to one degree or another, as long as it's uplifting and good and positive and trying to help their needs. Human nature turns it around so very easily, and we've all been burned, and maybe that's the reason we get so offended so quickly and so easily. But God did not intend us to be as private as sometimes we are. We are our brother's keeper. We are here to sharpen each other, to help each other, to strengthen each other, to pray for each other, and even to talk about each other to one degree or another, so long as it is a helpful, positive needful way of doing it. There, we just have to be careful. But we are all members of the same body. And if my foot is hurting, my hand will reach down and rub it because my brain tells it to. So my brain and my hand talk about my foot. Don't they? Now, what I say in my brain to my hand, I need to be careful with. If my brain tells my hand to slap my foot, then my foot's not going to be very happy. But if it tells it to massage it and ease it and help it and strengthen it, then my foot says, I like that. Let this mind be in you which was also in Emmanuel, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We are to have a mindset of coming to have the same mindset, the same quality of thought, the same mind as Christ and the Father. It is not presumptuous to seek the same level of thought, emotion, and feeling that God has. Christ did not sin. He was a human. And he did not think it was robbery or presumption to try to be like God, to be equal to him in every way. Now, isn't that the goal and purpose for which he created us? Is that we might become like him? That we might share his life and be kings and priests forever? but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So we're to think like him, to put our reputation, our self-desire, our self-direction, our vanity, our ego aside and be humble and meek as he did. We are to have that same mind he did to esteem others better than ourselves. 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the stake. Look what he went through for you and me. And look at how easily we get offended at each other. He was not offended by all that was wrong around him. He was humble and meek. And he died for every one of us. That is the kind of mind we're supposed to come to have. We're not supposed to give offense, but we're also not supposed to take offense. And you know what? Both of those just come so easily. We get offended so easily. And we say and do things that will offend others so easily. It's just natural. It's just human. It's just carnal. It's just against the rules. Now we say, well, keep God's commandments and His rules. Well, doesn't that mean lying and killing and cheating and adultery and murder? Well, yeah. But it also includes spiritual murder, character assassination. Not shooting someone with a gun, but shooting them with our tongue. Or being shot at and taking offense at it. Some of these rules are fairly hard to follow, aren't they, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, we agree up here. But what about our relationships with each other and how easy it is for us to take offense at each other? Is it important that we talk about the rule maker? Second Corinthians ten five. Second Corinthians ten verse five. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself, that's us exalting ourselves against the knowledge of God, here's something we're supposed to be doing. This is instruction from on high. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How far do the rules reach? Every thought. Now, you actually think more than you say. Let's think about that one a moment. Sometimes we say without even thinking. That's not what I'm trying to get across. But we actually think more thoughts than we actually literally say words, don't we? So our thought process is more voluminous than our speaking process. So he takes it down to us bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. That's how deep God's rules reach within us. Now, is that a bad thing? He says we're to keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Here is his mindset. He wants us to live in absolute peace and security, happiness, joy, no conflict, no pain, no tears, no upset, no offense, 
no bad feelings toward each other, in absolute bliss and harmony as one mind, as the Father and the Son are one, as he tells us in John 15 through 16 and 17, that we're to become like they are. So there's no shadow, no variance, no turning, no frustration between us. His rules are designed so that we might live forever in that state. If we could keep every rule he ever made and control every thought that goes through our head and not let any of them stray, we would live in complete peace and harmony. And the fact that we don't shows that we still have some growing and overcoming to do. Now, that is not a depressing thing. It's just a fact. And we're here to call upon he who came and died for us and his Father in heaven to give us the strength, the power, the spirit, the mind, the attitude to fight the good fight, to overcome the adversary, to resist evil and seek good, and to actually turn out to be spirit-mind over carnal matter. That's what we're here to do. Now, it is not an easy fight, and it is not one that is overcome and made perfect overnight. And I believe that as long as we are still human until that resurrection day, we will still always have a struggle. It will always be there as long as we are human. I mean, even if we go to the place of safety and we've believed all these things and we're protected from everything that's about to hit this earth, even those who make it to that point are still going to be human and carnal to one degree or another. Now, maybe we'll have grown a lot by then, I hope. I hope we get along better by then than we do now. I hope there's progress. But at the same time, as long as we're human, we have downward pulls and we have vanity and ego, no matter how hard we try to humble ourselves. It's just intrinsic to the being. It's there. And it's a fight. But if we fight it, and as we win, and as we grow, God has it in his mind and it is his pleasure, his good pleasure, as the scripture puts it, to give us the kingdom. It's what he desires so desperately, so longingly. It's why he did this whole thing in the first place. And we listened to Satan and broke the rules from the very beginning. And it's been a long, hard climb to try to get back where we need to be. And I do believe that the Father and the Son jumped for joy and so did the angels in heaven when Stephen gave that sermon and then got stoned to death because he had given heart, mind, body, and soul to God and put it ahead of his own life, himself, self-centeredness and ego, and humbled himself before God and preached a fiery sermon to men who, that made them hate him and kill him. And he did it for the sake of righteousness. What an incredible example of putting God ahead of himself because he knew he was going to irritate and agitate those people. 
I wanted to include 2 Timothy 3.16 here. Here he's telling Timothy, Paul is, that he had known the Scriptures from his youth. That means that he knew the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. It wasn't even written. So this includes the Old Testament. That from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith which is in Emmanuel. The words of the Old Testament could make you wise to salvation. You obeyed them, followed them. It's all Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. It's all David had. Didn't even have them. They wrote a lot of it. Moses. All Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is given by inspiration of God. Every bit of it, every word, is by the inspiration of God. And here is what it is good for. It is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for all that we believe. For reproof, it's here to correct us, to rebuke us, to straighten us out. For correction and for instruction in righteousness. That's what these words are written for. That the man of God may be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished to all good works. These words, if we use them, we read them, we adopt them, will lead us to be a man of God who is mature and perfectly equipped to do the things God wants done. Now let's notice also in Second Samuel, or First Samuel it is, First Samuel 3. Samuel was called as a boy, really. And God instructed him. Uh, let's go to 1 Samuel 3, verse 19. Well, let's go to 18. And Samuel told him every whit and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems him good. And Samuel grew, and the Eternal was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, God was able to use Samuel, and he didn't drop any of God's words. He used them all. Now, to use them all, you've got to read them all. God even instructed the kings that they were to read in this word every day. Every day. So they might be equipped to every good work. We're here to be kings and priests. How many days do we sometimes let go without maybe picking up and reading God's Word? This is the book that tells us how to be kings and priests. It tells us how to have an absolute, perfect, harmonious, wonderful life with no contention and no problems. What a treasure trove! This is the gold. This is the real gold, not just the ore. We need gold fever. These words are so important. They're what bring life and happiness and peace. And yet we as human beings fight them tooth and toenail, wanting to think what we want to think and do what we're going to do. And it doesn't matter how much the preachers holler and scream. 
we have our mind set on certain things and things we like to do and things we like to see and places we want to go and things we like to think, and we're not about to give them up. Whether And, and all they are is the words of the Creator, the Almighty, the Rule-Giver. And like God told Samuel in another place, it's not you, Samuel, it's me. I'm the one they're rebelling against. Now, they may cuss you and curse you and scream at you and dislike you and wish you'd do things differently, and you can't please all the people all the time anyway, Samuel, but it's not really you that they hate, it's me. And that's the truth. It's God's Word. It's His rules that we don't like. That's what the carnal mind is against. Enmity against God. Now, we can blame it on humans, but the real hatred is of God. God makes that very clear. Our enmity is not against men, it is against God. The carnal mind is enmity to God. He's the one we really hate by nature. Now, let's look at some... Well, do we have time... I wanted to get this all done in one sermon. Let's let's close today at least on a positive notice or note. Let's go to the Psalms for a few moments. Psalm forty. Now here's here's the kind of mind we need to come to have. It's a very positive section of scripture we'll look at. Psalm forty, verse eight. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Yes, your law is within my heart. David writing the Psalms. Now, David was, by nature, a sinner. David liked to do what David liked. David liked pleasures of the flesh. David liked a lot of things that need to be regulated by rule. And sometimes he messed up. He made mistakes. But David became converted, and he began to think differently about things than his nature was. Now, it's sad in a way that a man like David would have his sins brought forward through thousands of years and there for us all to read about. Now, we don't like it if somebody makes any kind of a disparaging remark about us, do we? And it is the glory of God to cover sin. And yet, on the other hand, as part of the teaching and instruction and guidance for us, David's sins were brought forward, at least some of them. Not all of them by any means, but some of them were for lessons for us. And the process that David went through to change his mind from being carnal self-centered, sinful, and selfish is illustrated in the Psalms, the conversion process, the change of mind, the change in thinking. And the man had a struggle. If you read all through the Psalms, you'll find him struggling with himself, just like Paul struggled with himself. And yet, he had come to see that God's law and doing his will was his will. And it's what was in his heart, but he had trouble with it. 
So he too is an encouragement to us. Let's go to chapter 119. This one we could just stay here and read the whole chapter. For sake of brevity, I will not, but I want to hit a few verses here. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 18. Open you my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. He says, it's here. I need my eyes open so that I might see how wonderful it really is. Because doesn't it seem to a human mind sometimes that the law of God is against us and it prevents us from thinking or doing things that might be pleasurable and enjoyable to us? We like to eat more than we ought to. Do you know that God regulates that? He says that a glutton will not enter into the kingdom of God. He regulates not only what we eat, but how much we eat. And we struggle with that one, don't we? That's a tough one. And our mind and our body rebels against it. Well, I want a little more. And it's hard to, for us to regulate that. It goes down into everything. But we need to understand the wondrousness of God's law. And that following our human nature leads us to frustration. You know, I carry more on my stomach than I need to. I eat more than I ought to. I don't exercise enough. You know what? It shows. And it's frustrating. I go out in public, and I'm always conscious of the fact that I weigh too much. It's always there. It never goes away. Why don't I do about something about it? Because I'm lazy and selfish and carnal, and I want to do things my way. And then I want to fume about the results. Open to me the wondrous things of your law. If I would govern my hand and the elbow that bends and my mouth, then I wouldn't have that problem. And I'd regulate my arms and my legs and get more exercise. Then I wouldn't fight it as much. And then as you get older, it becomes even more of a losing battle because it isn't as important as it used to be, maybe. See? Whatever the problem. It can be such a simple thing as that. And yet we fight it. 119.44 so shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. You know, sometimes I think we approach God's law and His way of life as, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it as long as I have to. And then when I'm changed, I won't have to anymore. Do we really love doing it God's way or is something we fight every step of the way and just do it because we have to? Or is the mind converted to the point that it wants to do it right. And even as we get converted, the body pulls us back. That's just the way boot camp is. What else can you say? Verse 77. 
Let your tender mercies come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. So he saw that living and living good and living forever is brought about by keeping God's law. And life becomes a delight. That is not the way human nature looks at it, but that's what it comes down to. Verse 97. Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. Can we say that yet? That we just meditate on God's law all the day? That we think about how doing things His way makes life better? David tried to think that way and apparently had captured some of that. Verse 126. It is time for you, eternal, to work, for they have made void your law. So he gave the rules, and mankind and Satan have basically pushed them aside, avoided them, and even said they're done away. And yet here is a call, and this is a prophecy, for God to stand up and do his work. Why? Because we have made for ourselves a society that is basically miserable because we are centered on the wrong things. And they create frustration for us. So it's time for God to come back and make every knee bow, every head bow to Him, and follow His rules so that we can have a happy, content, secure society. Keeping God's rules is the only way that can happen. And we have pretty well proved that man's way will not lead to that. Verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is the truth. People say, all I want is the truth. Just give me the truth. Well, what is the truth? Your word is truth, John 17, 17. And here he puts it a little differently. He says, your law, his law, or is his words, they are truth. If you really want to find the truth, pick this book up and read his rules, his words, his law. This is where truth is. All right, verse 165. And we'll stop with this one. Great peace have they which love your law. If you really have made yourself God-centered, have adopted His rules, His laws, His words, every one of them, and made them the way you think, the way your emotions work, if you love His law, you have great peace. And nothing shall offend them. Once we love God's law to the extent that David is talking about here, we will never again be offended. Can you imagine that? What will it take for us to divest ourselves of our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our esteeming ourselves higher or better or more important or more right than someone else, be humbled and meek to the point that nothing will ever offend us. 
Wouldn't it be neat not to ever be offended? We get that way so very easily. He's telling you how to become that way. If you really love his law, you will reach that point. God is lawmaker. He is rule maker. He knows how to live. He's lived a certain way forever, and will live that way forever. And he's given us a chance to jump on the bandwagon, to adopt his way of life, his way of thinking, his way of talking. And in this book, he explains what that way is. So it's neat that he gave us this word, this law, this rule book. One of his most important attributes, one of the greatest facets of his personality, is lawgiver, rule maker, because we of ourselves will make rules and break rules to our own hurt. So we have to come to think like the one who made the rules. The rules are not against us. They're there to help us to make life peaceful and satisfied. And when we break them, sooner or later, they will break us. And sooner or later, if we continue in that, they will kill us. And all mankind is appointed once to die because what? We broke the rules. Adam and Eve did, and every one of us ever since has. Now you have been given opportunity above all people on earth to adopt his words as your way of life, your way of thinking, acting, and talking. And if we do so, our problems will disappear. It's up to us.